Deuteronomy 32, I'm going to read verses 1 through 43. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak. And let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass and like showers upon the herb. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is not he your father who created you, who made you and established you? Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you, your elders, and they will tell you, when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance. When he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob his allotted heritage. He found him in a desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. The Lord alone guided him. No foreign god was with him. He made him ride on the high places of the land, and he ate the produce of the field, and he suckled him with honey out of the rock and oil out of the flinty rock, curds from the herd and milk from the flock with the fat of lambs, rams of Bashan and goats, and the very finest of the wheat, and you drank foaming wine made from the blood of the grape. But Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, stout, and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. The Lord saw it and spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and his daughters. And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be. For they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faithfulness. They have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. For a fire is kindled by my anger. And it burns to the depths of Sheol, devours the earth and its increase, and sets on fire the foundations of the mountains. And I will heap disasters upon them. I will spend my arrows on them. They shall be wasted with hunger and devoured by plague and poisonous pestilence. I will send the teeth of beasts against them with the venom of things that crawl in the dust. Outdoors the sword shall bereave, and indoors terror, for young man and woman alike, the nursing child with the man of gray hairs. I would have said, I will cut them to pieces. I will wipe them from human memory, had I not feared provocation by the enemy, lest their adversaries should misunderstand 
lest they should say, Our hand is triumphant. It was not the Lord who did all this. For they are a nation void of counsel, and there is no understanding in them. If they were wise, they would understand this. They would discern their latter end. How could one have chased a thousand and two have put ten thousand to flight unless their rock had sold them and the Lord had given them up? For their rock is not as our rock. Our enemies are by themselves. For their vine comes from the vine of Sodom and from the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of poison. Their clusters are bitter. Their wine is poison of serpents and the cruel venom of asps. Is not this laid up in store with me, sealed up in my treasuries? Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip. And for the day of their calamity is at hand and their doom comes swiftly. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone and there is none remaining, bond nor free. Then he will say, where are their gods, the rock in which they took refuge, who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offering? Let them rise up and help you. Let them be your protection. See now that I, even I am he, And there is no God beside me. I kill and make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver you out of my hand. For I lift up my hand to heaven and swear as I live forever, if I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and will repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives from the long-haired heads of the enemy." Rejoice with him, O heavens. Bow down to him, all gods. For he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. The word of the Lord. So this summer, as we are looking at these various songs recorded in Scripture, my goal is very simple. I am trying to engage our hearts with the truths of the gospel as they are given to us in Scripture. Uh, So this is uh, very specific. I would like my heart to be more engaged with the gospel. I'd like your hearts to be more engaged with the truth of the gospel. And so we're looking at these songs, which are, are expressions of how we feel and what we think about what God has done for us. And we've done uh, three songs so far. This is a fourth one, I believe. And uh, this is a different one. We're looking at a song of warning here. This is not, well, it's, at times it's joyful, and we'll look at that, but it's, there's a solemn tone to this song. This comes from Moses, and as you might know, Moses was a great leader who led Israel out of slavery in Egypt, and God kept him in the wilderness for 40 years, so the generations changed, and now there's an opportunity to teach this new generation the law. So the book of Deuteronomy, which is where we're in this morning, is the second giving of the, giving of the law. So Moses repeats the law to a new generation. That's why the name Deuteronomy, second giving of the law. And as we get to the end of the book, so the law has now been given, they've been instructed, they're ready to go into the land. Moses is ready to die. A new successor has been appointed. Joshua is starting to take leadership in Moses' place. And Moses says, oh, wait, <laughs> there's one more thing. Actually, two more things, because he's going to bless them later. But there's just one more thing here. I have a song for you. If you can 
go in your mind to the time when we listened to music from CDs and records. And for some of you, it'll be very difficult, and some of you are saying, I don't remember that time. <clears throat> That's not how I listen to music. But when you would get an album or you would get a CD, it would often have bonus tracks on it. It'd be something that didn't quite fit in the concept album, but it was important to pass along. And so you would just add that. Sometimes it's a live recording. Sometimes it's a different take on a song. Sometimes it's a totally new song. And so you would listen to the album, and then you'd get bonus tracks after that. I feel like this is kind of a bonus track of Deuteronomy. Moses says he's done teaching, and he says, but there's this song I'd like to sing for you, and I'd like you to learn it so you'll remember it for generations. Now, if you read the previous chapter, you would see that the song, in fact, originates from God. This is God who says, Moses, write this song and teach it to the people. God commands Moses to do that. It's meant, the song is meant to be a witness for God against the unfaithful people. And God knows, Moses knows, that once they get into the land, there's a great temptation to say, we've arrived, everything is great, and forget God and not worship Him anymore. So the song warns them against that, and it tells them there's going to be lots of difficulties in the land because of your unfaithfulness. It's a warning to stay faithful to God. Moses is using some harsh language here, and we will try to deal with some of that. He's not messing around. He's not holding back in any way. He's calling people unfaithful and describing their unfaithfulness in great detail. But the song is not negative. In fact, the song is meant to give life. The song is meant to be like the dew, like gentle rain. This is how it begins. This is, this is like rain. I'm giving you water that will produce life. If you listen to the song, you will live, and you will live well. So listen, pay attention to this. And after the song is sung, this is at the end of our chapter in verses 46 and 47, Moses says, take to heart all the words by which I'm warning you today, that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do all the words of this law. For it is no empty word to you, but your very life. And by this word you shall live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. So the law and the song are not meant to bring death. It's not meant to discourage them. It's meant to give them life and say, listen, pay attention and obey and live well because of this. But this song, if you compare the song with the law, it's not really giving you any new information. I mean, people were warned before about their unfaithfulness. So the question is, why, is, why does Moses think it's important to give them a song as well as a book of the law? Well, songs are memorable. Songs are moving. They're affecting. Songs shape cultures arguably better than laws. God gave his people the law, but he also gave them a song. Now, you see how gracious our God is that he, he doesn't just say it once, but he says, how else can I communicate it to them? How can I communicate it better? How can I give them another tool so it would help them and give them life? And so this is what's happening here. And every one of us that in the middle of the day at two in the afternoon just starts humming a song and you don't know where it comes from, realizes the power that songs have 
over us. And so this song is to become like that. It's become to be the background for their life in the land, where they would often sing it and remember its words and be moved to faithfulness. This is how I'd like to look at this song this morning. I think it's applicable to us. I think it's relevant to us. I'd like to see this song as a threefold remedy for our unfaithfulness. Remember, the issue is unfaithfulness to God. And so this song gives us a threefold remedy for our unfaithfulness. Number one, it reminds us of our problem. It reminds us that we are, in fact, prone to unfaithfulness. Number two, it restores our hope in God's ultimate restoration. It reminds us of our problem. It restores our hope. And finally, it refocuses us on God himself and on his faithfulness. It reminds us of who we are and what we're dealing with, restores our ultimate hope, and it refocuses us on God's faithfulness. You may even think of this outline as the triad of faith, hope, and love. You can break it down that way. Faith in our own condition, hope in God's restoration, and love for him that transforms us. All right, so let's get into this. It reminds us of our problem. And so if we are to pursue faithfulness, if we are to walk with Christ, if we are to intentionally pursue the Christian life, it is absolutely necessary for us to acknowledge that our tendency is, our natural tendency is to not do that. In fact, our natural tendency is to forsake him and to forget him. Right before Moses writes the song, he says, this is in previous chapter 31, 27, he says, I know how rebellious and stubborn you are. He knows that. The reason we need a song like this is because we are prone to unfaithfulness. G.K. Chesterton said that the only part of Christian theology that can actually be proven is our sin. You can't prove anything else, really. I mean, you have to believe, but you can prove our sin. He said that the fact of sin is as practical as potatoes. As practical as potatoes. This is very Chestertonian, the way, the way he puts it. But just as some of us have cut out carbs out of our diet, some Christians have forgotten that they are still sinners. There are many sermons being preached this very morning in many Christian churches that will make no mention of sin. They will seek to affirm people exactly as they are without any recognition of the reality of sin that is as practical as potatoes. In many churches, you will not hear anybody pushed or pressed to consider just how badly we are off. But if we are to get better, if we are to be faithful, how can we avoid the subject of unfaithfulness? How can we not talk about our own tendencies and us being prone to forsaking and forgetting God? I have a, a tire pressure light that's on in my van, and which I know there's a problem of some sort. I don't know what the problem is exactly. I think my tires are fine. But there's a problem somewhere. Maybe it's a computer problem. Maybe it's a sensor problem. And I, I have two things I can do here, two choices. I can get a, a small tape of electrical, small piece of electrical tape and just put it 
right over that, that pesky warning sign. Or I can go to the mechanic, and now it turns out I have to go to the dealer, to really see what's going on, replace whatever needs to be replaced, and fix the problem. The song is, that's a warning sign. That's, a, that's an alert that, hey, we're still unfaithful people. We're still dealing with our sin. Just because we're believers, just because we're walking with Christ, that doesn't mean we're done struggling with sin. And Moses is just brutally, brutally honest about our disposition towards sin. He doesn't want us to forget what our tendencies are. We are rebellious and stubborn. We are a crooked and twisted generation. Whatever generation you choose to belong to these days, we are foolish and senseless people. Now let, let these words sink in a little bit. Rebellious, stubborn, senseless, foolish, crooked, twisted. They describe us as much as they describe the Israelites of the Deuteronomy generation. In verse 6, Moses points out our ingratitude. He says, God is your father who created you, and this is how you repay him. We can identify with that, right? You look at your life. I look at my life, and I say, am I living in gratitude towards God? He gave me so much, made me, redeemed me, cares for me. Is my life really an appropriate reaction to that and response to that? In verse 15, Moses points out our insolence. He's using this curious curious name for Israel, Jeshurun. Jeshurun is the, the term he's using. That it just means that it means upright. It means the upright one, but he's using it sarcastically. He's saying the upright Israel, the moral Israel, grew fat and kicked and forsook God and made him, and God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. We can identify with that scoffing at the God of our salvation, not taking him seriously with our lives, with our words sometimes. In verses 16 and 17, Moses points out our idolatry. Once in the land, God's people found other gods to worship. In fact, demons to sacrifice to. They forgot the God who made them and redeemed them and turned to idols. Idolatry. We have idols, don't we? Think about your life. What is more important to you? what draws your heart away from God. In 28, verse 28, Moses points out our ignorance. We often don't know what God is doing in our lives, and we miss it. We're too quick to credit ourselves with victories, even when it should be clear to everyone that only God could do that. And Moses says, really, you missed it? One person made 2,000 people run away, and you missed that? You think you did that? In a battle, he's saying, that, that's God. It's your rock that is doing this. We often don't recognize God's discipline in our lives, and we come up with all sorts of, explanation of explanations of why our life is difficult, all the while ignoring that this is God who is drawing you to himself. Friends, that, that's us. That, I mean, this, this is a description of who we are. We are ungrateful. We are insolent. We are idolatrous. We are ignorant. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. That's about us. That's a hymn that we sing and we should sing because it describes who we are. The question then becomes, do you feel it this morning? We may sing that hymn, but do you feel it as you sing it? Do you feel it today? 
that you are prone to wander, that this is your tendency away from God to forget Him, to forsake Him, that when Moses writes this song, it's about us as well as it is about the Israelites. Do you know that your tendency is, in fact, to forget God and to forsake Him so that you are preparing to address it, that you are ready to deal with that? That's the first part of the remedy is just acknowledging that, hey, we have a problem. We are unfaithful people. And left to ourselves, of course, we're going to walk away. We're going to forsake Him and forget Him, prone to wonder. And then the second aspect of the remedy is that our hope in the ultimate restoration needs to be reaffirmed. It needs to be restored. As honest as the song is about our problem, it gives us hope. It's not overly negative. And I don't think Scripture ever really is overly negative. It's, it, has a, it has a knack for, for balancing itself out with hope. And so we see it here. To pursue faithfulness, we must hold on to the hope of final restoration. That when God is done with us, we will be well. That God will ultimately take care of us. Now, there's a lot here about God's discipline. And again, Moses, man, just describes all the difficult times that people are going to have because of their unfaithfulness, and he just lays it out. Look at verses 23 through 25. This is God's discipline. God says, I will heap disasters upon them. I will spend my arrows on them. They shall be wasted with hunger and devoured by plague and poisonous pestilence. I will send the teeth of beasts against them. How are you feeling right now? This is hard. With the venom of things that crawl in the dust, outdoors the sword shall bereave, and indoors terror for young man and woman alike, the nursing child with the man of gray hairs. This is a description of what's going to happen to them, and we know, reading the rest of the Bible, it did happen to them. God disciplined them because they were unfaithful. They were trying to walk away from him. And yet, as the song progresses, the tone changes. God promises to vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. This is verse 36. And you go even a little bit earlier in 26. I, I like the subtlety of this. God says, I would have said, I will cut them to pieces. I would have done that, but, right? So there's a but here. I would have done it. I could have done it, but I'm not going to do that because God promises to protect his people. His sword and his arrows are now directed towards the enemies of God's people. This is verses 41 and 42. And the song ends on a triumphant note. We are called to rejoice because God's ultimate faithfulness to his people will prevail. So in the midst of discipline, in the midst of our unfaithfulness, not mincing any words and telling you exactly what we are, exactly what God is going to do to us, there's still this hope that He will restore us and He will do everything right and eventually, eventually, things will be perfect. And He will maintain His faithfulness. And so when we think about that vision of restoration, that should motivate us today to pursue faithfulness. As you wrestle with your own junk, as you wrestle with your own failures this morning, as we think about our own difficulties, and even in the midst of God's discipline, we should keep that vision of the final restoration in mind. 
I don't know if you've ever been in a long-distance relationship. Maybe when you were dating, maybe you are dating now. Maybe you're hoping to date, and you're thinking, long distance, is that an option? It's hard. Jillian and I dated long distance. I was in Ukraine. She was in Michigan. Six months we were apart. There was a brief week when we were together in the midst of it. She came to visit me. But our communication was hard. I mean, back, we wrote letters. We actually wrote actual letters, pens and paper. And we talked to each other on the phone on, like, landline that her father had to pay for. <laughs> and it's hard to stop talking to someone. And so as you, as you spend most of your time apart and you want to be together, it's very difficult. But what helps you is the vision that one day we will be together. And so you dream of that moment. And I dreamt of those moments. And I dreamt of that time when, when we talk, I can also see her and not just hear her. That we can embrace. That we can be together and not hurry to finish talking. And so that vision, you know, it, it invigorates you and it makes you feel like, I can get through this. I can remain faithful in this relationship. I can remain committed. I can get through the, the pain and the difficulty because one day, one day, we will be together. That's the same dynamic here. As they are struggling, and, and this is why this song is so practical, Moses is warning them, and he's saying, you will struggle, and there will be discipline, and you will be unfaithful. But remember, when God is done, when all is done, you will be with him. And he will hold you fast. He won't let you go. Through the discipline, you will survive. And you will persevere, and you will be with God. So when, when we are struggling, sometimes at the lowest point, the best thing we can do is read those passages of Isaiah 65 and Revelation 21 that give us these glorious visions of what it will be like when Christ will return, his kingdom will be established, there will be a new heaven and a new earth, and everything will be new, and there won't be any struggle, and my insecurities are going to be gone, and my wounds will be healed, and I will not be prone to unfaithfulness anymore. And so to think of that makes you pursue faithfulness now. Let me put it this way. To know what's coming should help you keep going. To know what's... I worked on this, so give me a little bit feedback here. <laughs> to know what's coming, the restoration of God, should help you keep going now. This is not just something that is far away into the future and has no connection to me now. It, it matters to me now because I know because of God's character and his promises and this song that he will restore me and he will restore all of his children and that none of his children will be lost. And even though right now it feels like we're barely holding on sometimes, he won't let us go. And we will be in the new heaven and the new earth enjoying God forever. That's our destiny. That's our future. And so that hope needs to be restored for us to persevere even through our unfaithfulness. Here's the last aspect of the song that helps us deal with our unfaithfulness. That's the last aspect of that remedy, and we're going to spend some time on this. The song refocuses us 
on God himself and his faithfulness. It invites us to contemplate who God is and what he has done for his people. It tethers our poetic imagination to his perfections. It draws our attention to his excellencies. If the point of the song is to encourage us to be faithful to God, that's the point. Moses wants us to persevere and be faithful to God. Then why spend so much time on describing God? I mean, he describes us, of course, but a lot of the song is describing God and recounting of what he has done for us and how he treats us and how he feels about us. The song, in many ways, is, is as much about our unfaithfulness as it is about God's faithfulness. Now, notice especially the metaphor of the rock. The rock. God is our rock. Six times in the song, Moses uses this idea that God is our rock. He's, he's stable. He's secure. You see, we can count on him. He's immovable, solid. Those are, the, those are the ideas that this image evokes. We think about the rock of God. We think about his faithfulness. He is as faithful as the rock, as strong as the rock, as trustworthy as a rock. Now, technically, let me, as an aside, this makes Deuteronomy 32 the first rock song. I've not heard it on Keishi. I don't know why. But you thought maybe it was rock around the clock or that's all right. I would say that Deuteronomy 32 is your first rock song, and that needs to be really corrected in the rock music histories. By the way, Moses was about Mick Jagger's age when he wrote the song, so I think it all, it all fits together. So when you think about the, these this vivid, rich descriptions of God in the song that really is meant to move us to faithfulness, what is the connection? While the descriptions of God in this language of him being the rock, if he is just really trying to tell us, be faithful. Well, please listen. The reason is because we become what we behold. We become what we behold. We resemble naturally what occupies our minds and our hearts. If we want to become more faithful, we need to behold the faithfulness of God. It really is that simple. It's the contemplation of God that changes us, that transforms us. We talked about in our small group, Tom, Tom our leader, Tom Levanus, in our small group on Friday brought this up. It's the encounter with God. It's seeing him. It's, it's seeing the surpassing worth of Christ that actually changes you and pulls you into the Christian life and keeps you in the Christian life. That's exactly how it works. If we look at God who is faithful, eventually we become faithful to him ourselves. We become what we behold. When we worship false gods, we become false. When we worship worthless idols, we ourselves become worthless. That's not my idea. That's from the scriptures. When we think about the glory of God and we behold his glory, we actually become more glorious. Let me give you Reference, 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. He says, if we behold God's glory, if we're looking at God by faith, we're looking at him, we are being changed into his image. We become like him. 
So if we want to be faithful, Moses' answer is, look at the faithfulness of God. Meditate on his faithfulness. Contemplate how faithful he is. And then we are being transformed gradually into the same image from one degree of glory to another. One scholar says, what people revere, they resemble, either for ruin or restoration. What people revere, they resemble, either for ruin or restoration. If we revere God, we resemble God for restoration, being transformed from one degree of glory to another. Listen to a Puritan writer. He says, faith looking on Christ transforms a man and turns him into his similitude. Looking on a bleeding Christ causes a soft, bleeding heart. Looking on a holy Christ makes the soul humble. And as I'm going to add this to Thomas Watson, looking on a faithful Christ makes our lives faithful. It's a very simple principle, but once we get it, once we grab hold of it, it changes us. And then you start putting it into practice. And the more you contemplate God, the more you meditate on Him, the more you see Him through the eyes of faith, the more you become like Him. You don't become less faithful when you look at Him. You become more faithful. You don't become less holy when you look at Him. You become more holy. You don't become less humble when you look at Him. You become more humble. That's the Christian life. That's it. That's sanctification. More contact with God makes us more like God. And as we pursue him, and there are many means to do that, but as we pursue him intentionally, we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. Now, we know that's how it works in, in life, right? If you watch the new wave French movies, and that's your life, eventually you're going to start wearing suits and trench coats. That's just how it goes, and smoke cigarettes. There's no other way to do it. I remember... <laughs> I'm going to share a story. I have a couple of minutes here. But when I was growing up, you know, I got into music, rock music pretty heavily. And so I remember the Beatles was a huge revelation to me. And as you listen to the Beatles, you realize, yeah, you start kind of dressing a little bit like the Beatles, and then your hair, you start, you start thinking, that's a good haircut, you know. <laughs> and then I got into the Rolling Stones. Things changed a little bit. I got a little bit of a, a swagger about me. I started dressing a little bit differently. My hair grew out. You know, and you, you think about that. And then I got into jazz, and you don't want to know what I looked like <laughs> when I was listening to Thelonious Monk. There may have been a beret involved, maybe. But that, that's natural. That happens to us. When you do something, you, you focus on something, you pay attention to something, you change. You become like what you worship, like what you like, like what you spend time thinking about. That's normal. And so Moses tells us in the song, be faithful. But he doesn't just tell us to do it in our own effort. He gives us tools. He says, remember that you're unfaithful, so please be careful. Know and prepare and, and beware that you will be unfaithful, so prepare for that. And then he says, listen, there's hope. That hope will fuel your obedience now. And then he says, let me just tell you a lot about God. And I'm telling you a lot about God, and as you focus on him and as you see him as your rock, you'll be transformed into faithful followers. Gradually, yes. Through struggle, through discipline, yes. But towards faithfulness and holiness. So let's behold the rock together this morning. 
Let's see what, what Moses tells us about the rock. Let's be transformed by beholding God's faithfulness. Because he is the rock. He is God that's unchanging, that's reliable, that's stable, that's immovable, that's steady, that's solid. When you look at the rock, you see that he is the God of faithfulness. Verse 4, he's the God of faithfulness. He is just and upright. This is his character. There's no iniquity in him. When you, when you look at God, there's nothing evil about him. There's no, there's no shade of iniquity in him. In verse 6, when we look at the rock, we see that he is our father. Happy Father's Day. He is our father, made and established his people. In verses 8 and 9, he put his angels, this is, this is fascinating, he put his angels, sons of God, I think that's angels, over other nations, but his people, his people that he chose are his portion and his heritage forever. Man, that makes, that makes me feel something. Because when I think about different people and God saying, I'm going to dispatch this angel to take care of them and rule over them. I'm going to send this angel to that part of the world, to that people group. But now I'm going to gather my people and I will rule over them. This is not a job for an angel. I will do it myself. This is my possession. This is my heritage. This is my portion. Verses 10 through 14, it talks, this is a beautiful passage. He found his people in the, in the desert land, in the howling waste of the wilderness. I can never read this passage, and I quote it often, without feeling something. Imagining myself in the howling waste of the wilderness, without any hope, without any chance of survival, unless somebody comes, unless this eagle-like creature comes and scoops me up and protects me and care for me. God does that for us. He cares for us. He guides us. He provides for us. He keeps us as the apple of his eye. What's more precious than that? He keeps us as the apple of his eye. Verses 21 and 22, God is jealous for his people. We tend to think of jealousy as a negative emotion, not with God. He's jealous, meaning he cares, meaning he loves us. He loves us enough to discipline us. He loves us enough to battle our enemies, to keep us, even if we're trying to get away from him. That's how jealous he is for us. He doesn't want to give up his loved ones. He's a jealous God. The fire of his anger burns to the depths of Sheol because of his people's unfaithfulness. He feels when we are unfaithful, you see? That affects him. And so when we look at his faithfulness, that affects us and that transforms us into faithful children. Verse 36, God promises to vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. When you imagine God who says, I will protect you, and God pulling out his sword, and God pulling on his bow, and saying, I will not let anybody mess with my people. I myself, I will be a man of war. That's from another song, right? A man of war, and I will protect you, and I will fight your battles. Verse 39, God says, there is no God beside me. Unique, he's unique. I kill and I make alive. He has complete power. I wound and I heal, and there's none that can deliver out of my hand. Nobody can can challenge his power, and yet his power is directed towards us for our good. God avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. 
This is our God. This is how faithful he is. This is how committed he is to us. What does it make you feel when you think about that? Does it make you follow him more? Or does it make you want to say, I don't like this kind of God? This is not a God that that makes me love him anymore. When you have this vision of God, this glorious, beautiful, faithful God, it moves you to follow him. Of course it does. It attracts you to him. He's the rock. He's our rock. He's not just an immovable object somewhere out there, but he says, I'm going to be that for you. I'm going to be immovable for you. I'm going to be stable for you. I'm going to be solid for you. I'm going to be trustworthy for you. When you look at him, when you contemplate his faithfulness, it changes you. It motivates you to be faithful to him. Feel free to respond as you hear this. When you think about God, when you think about his faithfulness, it it should move us. Of course it should. When we behold the rock, we find him to be faithful to his own nature. This is who he is. He's a faithful being. We find him to be faithful in his love for us. We find him to be faithful in his providential care for his children. We find him to be faithful in his loving discipline. Yes, even in discipline, he remains faithful. And we find him to be faithful in completing his work of redemption for his people. He will do it. He will do everything he's promised us. None of that is going to be undone. When we behold the rock, we find him immutable and immovable. We find him solid and stable. We find him reliable and trustworthy. That's our rock, and we get to look at him, we get to behold him, and we get to be changed by him to become like him. You see, he's not like a man that says at a wedding ceremony, I will love you forever, and then six months after says, I don't love you anymore. That's not our God. It's not what the rock does. When God says, I will love you forever, he will love you forever. His faithfulness is eternal because he is eternal. His character doesn't change. You can count on him. You can trust him with your life. Things change. People change. The weather changes. God doesn't change. Remains the same. Faithful. Faithful yesterday, faithful today, and faithful forever. When we behold the rock, we find that he is always there. He's never absent from our lives. His presence is often felt. Sometimes it's tangible, but always, always dependable. Steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. This flows from God's faithful heart. This is who he is. He can't not give you mercies every morning. He is amazingly gracious. He is miraculously merciful. He is constantly compassionate. He is dazzlingly devoted to you. And he is both good and great. Good in his character, but great to look at, great to worship, capturing our hearts. When we behold the rock, we find that his love is unprecedented, and yet it's unrepeatable. He is remarkably patient with us. He is unimaginably long-suffering. This is where some of us should say amen, because we depend on his long-suffering. And we're glad we can't imagine how far that goes, because we're going to have a reason to exercise that attribute. 
He is unquestionably gracious. He is unmistakably loyal to us. Friends, once he embraces us, he never lets you go. And he says that he will hold us fast. Now there's one more piece we need to add to this when we contemplate the rock. We need to add 1 Corinthians 10 verse 4 to our meditation. In 1 Corinthians 10 verse 4, Apostle Paul says this. This is crucial to put things together to see just who he is, what kind of God he is, and how he can change us through our beholding of his glory. Paul says about the wilderness experience, about Deuteronomy, he's talking about these people who are wandering in the desert and being provided by the rock. He says, all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. I love when Paul does it because we're wondering about this. We're reading the Old Testament. We're saying, I wonder who this is. And Paul says, by the way, this was Jesus, yes. It was Jesus, the rock, following them. It was Jesus providing for them. And so now we're starting to put everything together, and we say it's not just beholding God in general. It's not just beholding God as an abstract being. We have a person we can look at. We have a person that was touched, that spoke, that loved that was broken, that hurt, that cried. This is the person that we can look at. We can behold him, and as we behold him by faith, we're being transformed into his image. Our destiny is to become like Christ. This is the hope. This is the hope restored to think that in the new heaven and the new earth, I will be like Jesus, and you will be like Jesus. And that makes you be faithful now because of who he is, what he's done for you. Because the one who followed them in the wilderness, the rock who followed them in the wilderness, followed them to the point of becoming human. It's all the same person. The one who suffered their unfaithfulness in the wilderness suffered for their unfaithfulness on Calvary. The one who provided water in the wilderness provided blood on the cross. The one who gave life in the wilderness gave up his life on the cross. The one who kept them from death in the wilderness conquered death in the resurrection. The one who never left them in the wilderness promised to come back for them from heaven to hold them forever. The rock, this rock Jesus, can either become the cornerstone of your life and become the foundation, the immovable, the unchangeable, the immutable foundation of your life, which will make you faithful, which will make you persevere, which will change you from one glory to another. Or it can become a stumbling block. It could become a cornerstone that will crush you ultimately. Which one is it for you? As you come to the table now, you have to answer that question. You have to answer the question, who is Jesus to you? Is he, there's only two options, only two. Is he the rock on which you build your life? And you say, this is the rock that is ever-present. This is the rock that is trustworthy. This is the rock that I can always go to that's always there for me. This is the rock on which if I, if I look at it, it transforms me. If you're in that camp, if you're in that category, you've encountered him, you know him, you come to the table. And you come to the table to remember that I am a broken person, which is why Jesus was broken for me. But 
At this table, we're given a glimpse of the feast in the kingdom of the new heaven and the new earth. And so it gives us hope that it will all be well. And we come to this knowing that if we look at him, we will be changed by faith. That's one option. The other option is to say, I don't care. I don't care. I will do what I want to do. I will ignore, I will forget, I will forsake this God. And that way you stumble over the rock. And as you stumble, you fall. And as you fall, the rock will crush you. And there is no final restoration for you. And there's no changing into glory for you. And you will just remain in the state of unfaithfulness forever. Those are the choices. If you're in the first camp, the rock is your foundation, the cornerstone of your life. By faith, you've embraced him. You come to the table and rejoice that he is ministering to you even now. Even if you are unfaithful, he is faithful to you right now. But if you have not embraced him by faith, don't come to the table just to go through the motions. Deal with him. Deal with the rock. Look at him and pray and beg God that he would give you a new heart with new spiritual eyes to see what God is really like, what Jesus is really like, so you can be transformed by the Holy Spirit.